and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joe's pressure fading out in the background. This is episode 79 on June 23rd, 2022. Thank you for joining me again on the Consumer Podcast. Thank you for rating it positively wherever you're listening uh, right now. And of course, if you want to support this podcast, you can do so by going on consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate. This week, I'm playing you an interview that my colleague David Clement from Consumer Choice Radio did with EU risk and science communication specialist, Professor David Zurouk. You'll hear the entire exchange at the end of this episode. Also in this episode, France bans English gaming tech jargon in push to preserve language purity. Oh boy. Also, Telegram is under fire for not playing along entirely with the EU's disinformation policies. So let's get started. French officials on Monday continued their centuries-long battle to preserve the purity of the language, writes The Guardian, overhauling rules on English video game jargon. So uh, here's the, the French uh, Académie Française, the French Academy, uh, which sort of governs uh, how you're supposed to speak the French language. And, um, of course, officially banning certain words doesn't mean you're not allowed to use them anymore, but they become mandatory for government officials and, for instance, in court documents. Uh, so here's some of the examples. The word pro-gamer was too, uh, too much of an anglicism for the French Academy, will become joueur professionnel, and then streamer becomes joueur animateur en direct. Um, so I find that a bit of a mouthful there, but it gets even uh, stranger uh, because uh, cloud gaming becomes jeu vidéo en nuage. Nuage, the French word for cloud, quite literally, uh, and that doesn't really work in French. It sounds a bit odd. Uh, it's a bit like when the, the French changed the then infamous Walkman, uh, which uh, which was the, the, the early days of Anglicisms not being uh, accepted in France, and uh, that became baladeur from the French word, uh, the, the verb balader, uh, which is uh, you know taking a walk. Uh, so there again, literally translating Walkman, but it just doesn't have the same vibe in French. Uh, e-sports, uh, which is sort of such an international term at this point, will become jeu vidéo de compétition. So uh, competition video gaming, uh, which is all a bit like if you try to explain to your grandfather what uh, esports is uh, or what some of these gaming terms are. So uh, a bit of an odd choice there. Uh, the French Academy has in general uh, given out quite some uh, um, warnings out to French uh, institutions, for instance, SNCF, uh, which is the uh, French Rail Operator Network, um, was uh, scolded for using WeGo for their low-cost trains. WeGo, um, uh, spelled O-U-I-G-O, which um, which goes for the French we, which is yes, but then can also be read as WeGo, as in we are going. Um, big Data and Drive-In are also two others that the French Academy has issues with. Not exactly sure um, how they're going to translate Big Data and Drive-In, uh, but uh, but we'll see. The French had never run out of great ideas as to reshift the priorities of the day. Next up, and that is the biggest story, um, the European Union is trying to crack down on disinformation online, and it tries to do that as well on messaging platforms. Uh, so we have the classic social media platforms debate um, as to you know what are what are platforms allowed to do, what should they sanction, what should they fact check, and um, there's usually in the EU the system is that you have these voluntary rules. So platforms are incentivized to have voluntary, um, call it censorship or not, uh, but 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 some sort of restrictions on how news is spread and what 
truisms are allowed to be spread. Now, messaging apps are also supposed to be covered by this. And uh, Meta, which is uh, formerly Facebook, which has uh, Facebook Messenger, and then they also have uh, WhatsApp and messaging services all across the platforms, including on Instagram. Uh, they are supposedly uh, trying to play along because they were also on the table when writing these rules. And now another messaging app does not seem to be playing ball, and that is Telegram, the uh, the, the app originally um, created by, uh, by by Russian developers and uh, is now pretty prominent in Europe because of some of the features that it has that other messaging platforms do not. So let's have an analyst at France 24 explain this for us. If you weren't on Telegram before the Ukrainian war started, you might well be now. Downloads of the messaging app have topped the charts since Russia invaded Ukraine. To tell us more, I'm joined by technology editor Peter O'Brien. Good to see you, Peter. Uh, could you explain what Telegram is for those who don't have it? Yeah, so it's been likened to WhatsApp, but it's really more of a social network than a messaging platform. It does have instant messaging features, but it also has um, channels where you can broadcast messages to an unlimited number of people. And these group chats, which can have up to 200,000 members in them. I mean, that's just a staggering amount of memes sent every day. I can't imagine the headache it it would be to be in one of them. Um, this makes the app then incredibly viral, much more so than other apps like it. Um, the same message can be shared to a vast number of people. Group chats uh, on WhatsApp, by comparison, are limited to 256 people, and you can only forward a message to a maximum of uh, five different people. That's deliberately to, to stop the spread of fake news. Well, so as somebody who uses Telegram himself because of the sort of direct messaging is, is very good. You can, you know, everything, do everything from playing voice messages in the background. It has uh, cool stickers. It's quite fast. Um, and it, it seems to be always on the top of things when it comes to features. Features that, you know, when Telegram are only coming to, to WhatsApp uh, about a year or two later. So, so it's very innovative, but it definitely also has these very strange groups uh, uh, on, on on its platforms. And there I, I say, well, I mean, while we may recognize that some of the groups may be problematic, and I mean, nobody wants to have neo-Nazis organizing, um, I'd also say that I think we're sort of shooting the messenger quite literally here uh, by, by blaming the messaging service for what's, what goes on on their platform. You know, nobody was going after the post office after uh, all types of threats were, were sent in letters to politicians. And we're also not doing it with telecom operators whenever somebody makes a threat over the phone. But somehow now, because there's sort of more diversity in the messaging space, we seem to be more eager to do that and, and shift responsibility. Because, I mean, it doesn't require you to address sort of a wider issue as to why this disinformation exists or sort of why conspiracy theories exist. It sort of tries to solve that by blaming the platform. And, I mean, as the analyst on France 24 was saying this, you know, with groups up to 200,000 people, plus the ability to share very quickly all of your messaging, I'm not exactly sure how this is going to be done without automating the system, right? I mean, you, you can have manual oversight, but it only gets you so far. I mean, not even the members of these group will be able to see all the things that are posted there. So I'm not quite sure how a person will do it. And then what you do is you go by keywords. And when you go by keywords, then you have the issue that, well, if I'm just quoting it and saying, well, that's an insane theory, 
And now in my quote, it also has, or you know, by me explaining it, I'll also mention some of these keywords. What I'll end up doing is get myself also caught in this filter and probably targeted as uh, as a as somebody who's spreading this information as well. I mean, you know, if I'm quote tweeting and let's say ISIS tweet, I'm not embracing terrorism. I'm just quoting it. And so for a tool to um, notice those differences is very hard. And if you do manual oversight, you need to employ a very large office of people who will still be able to sift through even those that are just being reported by the sort of the automatic tool. And I think that's where it gets very problematic also because these are like also one-on-one -on -one direct messaging services. I mean, Telegram is not just sort of a social media it is a social media and messaging hybrid it does both things at the same time and where do we draw the line if i have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody about a, a sort of a theory i have now could that be considered disinformation probably not but so where's the line and does it have if my group of friends is five people if it's 10 people like i think we really get too much in the nitty-gritty of what we think so the operators are supposed to do there um and, and and ultimately, we run the risk of legislators getting frustrated with the aims that they've set not being achieved and then concluding something that some countries have considered already is banning the service altogether. And, and I think that that is something that we'll be seeing more in the future is this idea that, well, the messaging platform is the problem, which... I mean, if you look at the wide array of newspapers that are still being published and that, you know, say all sorts of things... Sometimes because they didn't know better, sometimes because they know better and they just don't care. And the horrifying idea of banning newspapers, even though they might be spread, I mean, there's, there's, these, there's all types of conspiracy newspapers as well. But the idea of banning a newspaper would be very odd to us and remind us sort of like of the things that we're not supposed to, you know, decide in government and indeed the idea why free expression laws and freedom of the press was created. And I think this falls in the reign of sort of what the free internet is supposed to be about, um, that the messaging platforms cannot be held accountable for things that are being sent on its platform. Um, now, it can develop its own policies, and I know that, you know, Twitter is also labeling government accounts and, and, and so on. Um, so that's, that those, those community guidelines do make sense. But ultimately, this will go further, and, and we see that already because what the social media platforms have worked out with the European Commission as for self-regulation, those in, that information will flow into the EU's Digital Services Act. So here Politico is writing, these publications will then be reviewed by the Commission to ensure the companies are upholding their voluntary commitments to tackle this information. The efforts will feed into separate legally required obligations under the EU's Digital Services Act to carry out risk assessments of potential harm across social media. And that's sort of a regular playbook as to how the EU operates. It usually sets rules that are very hard to achieve on a voluntary basis. And then when the companies fail, it says, oh, well, look, now we have the justification for, for regulation without ever testing if sort of the premise even is is achievable. It, it operates by these grandiose goals, but not by, you know, the realistic uh, effects. And also when it does any type of impact assessment, it never really assesses the advantage of not regulating, right? I mean, it, it never it never takes into account the unintended consequences. It only focuses on the immediate problem. And not only do I think that the immediate problem cannot be solved by regulating the messaging apps, 
I also think that the unintended consequence is that, you know, we give the government the amount of power to decide what should be on messaging apps. And that very quickly takes us further than we want to go. And then last but not least, I have uh, David Clement's interview that he ran on Consumer Choice Radio with EU risk and science communication specialist, Professor David Zarouk. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio coming to you from on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region, Ontario, and on the Big Talker 106.7 FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina. I have the pleasure of introducing our next guest, David Zarek, otherwise known as The Risk Monger. Uh, he is an EU risk and science communication specialist and a professor at Odyssey University College. Thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you very much, David. You should also mention that I am also Canadian coming from the Niagara region. Oh, perfect. Okay. <laughs> so not very far from where I am. I'm actually uh, based in Oakville. So you, you're from just down the road, about 45 minutes. That's great. Um, so I wanted to have you on the program. I, I've seen uh, a lot of what you've tweeted and written about in regards to when governments uh, or regulators really go awry in terms of evaluating risk and hazard and things like that. Can you explain to our listeners, almost in layman terms, what the difference between hazard and risk is, and then provide some examples of where we get some really wonky policy suggestions? Well, in fact, one of the things that's important to realize is that a lot of people today are equating risk with hazard. But mm -hmm. uh, there, there are some big differences that are quite important. Uh, the first thing to realize is that when you, uh, when you have a hazard, you, there are hazards everywhere. But it's our question of exposure. Uh, how are we exposed to something? There's a car on the street outside of my window. I'm not exposed to that car. And so although that car is indeed a hazard, it's not a risk. So, so risk equals hazard times exposure. And the entire risk management process is one of reducing the exposures to some things that may be hazardous uh, to what is sometimes called the Alara principle, as low as reasonably achievable. So uh, if, for example, um, we understand that aspirin does a very good job to you know, ease pain or reduce headaches, uh, we will expose ourselves to the chemicals in an aspirin to get the benefits. Now, one aspirin or two aspirins is very good. Uh, to solve a problem. 20, 25 aspirins are not. So if I expose myself to too many aspirins, I am indeed taking a risk. Mm -hmm. So the job of the risk manager is to be able to determine the level of a safe exposure and uh, therefore try to reduce any, uh, any risks to hazards while still having the benefits. Mm -hmm. Because it, we do expose ourselves when there are benefits. I will cross the street. You know, why did the risk monger cross the street? I will cross the street if I see a benefit to that. But I yep. therefore must address the exposure uh, to any hazards that I'm taking. Going outside involves enormous hazards. Uh, but I've come to be able at a certain point uh, to control those. Now. What's happening in policy today is that we are no longer really using risk management anymore. We're using something else which is called uncertainty management, which means that if I'm uncertain about any hazard, 
mm-hmm. and levels of exposure because we may not know whether two aspirins is actually safe for everybody. There may be one person out of a thousand mm-hmm. who may have a bad reaction to an aspirin. So therefore, the solution when you're uncertain is to remove the hazard. And that is usually done by a tool called the precautionary principle. Precautionary principle is not risk management, it's uncertainty management. But it's much easier for a policymaker because you don't have to worry about any bad decisions uh, happening. Although, um, when you think about it, precautionary decisions do lead to enormous loss of benefits at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in the way in which you describe um, hazard risk, and it, it brings me to a couple big policy areas that I've recently written about. I know you've talked about them. PFAS is one, glyphosate is another. There's really a long list of areas where they've fallen into that uncertainty category and and in my opinion at least very very much overreacted um before we started recording you and i were chatting my my favorite headline to to exemplify this and i'd love for you to weigh in was when we saw headlines that said cheerios contain cancer causing herbicide um and i mean obviously for the person who is not well versed that would be a very alarming headline um but if you dig a little deeper, it really boiled down to the inability to discern between hazard and risk um, and, and what that entails. So if, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on at least that particular case um, well, and how that's kind of developed. The herbicide, of course, is glyphosate that they mm-hmm. found in trace levels because, in fact, glyphosate can be used in, you know, in and detected today in the parts per billion range. Now, mm-hmm. part per billion is like one second every 320 centuries. So it's a rather small amount. Uh, but because we're uncertain at what level, uh, people would say, therefore, ban all glyphosate because uh, we're detecting it in Cheerios. But at what level? Um, in fact, it's even a question whether it was detected or whether it was a shadow in a chromatograph that, was, that had shown up. <laughs> But the, uh, I, I think at the levels that uh, were released, I think this is the Environmental Working Group who did the first one, uh, they, you'd have to eat about 3,000 boxes of cereal a day to expose yourself to a level of risk. Glyphosate has a very low risk uh, by any standards. If you look at the, um, the, the, the le- what they call the um, LT50 range, of how much mm-hmm. you'd have to, uh, uh, you know, how how much you'd have to expose yourself to a chemical in order to, uh, you know, suffer any consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's below levels that you would find in products that are in chocolate or in okay. uh, biscuits. So it, it's actually very very low. But um, people are not worried about chocolates or biscuits and no. uh, they, um, they're also not paid by industries that will benefit if a herbicide was taken off the market. So yes. You can see and, and, and they don't necessarily have the foresight, uh, to realize what modern agriculture would look like. Or any technology. Yeah, I mean, my my favorite was when they were detecting glyphosate. And I mean, if you're looking for it, you'll find it anywhere. You'll find anything uh, uh, if you look for it hard enough with the detection devices we have now. But my favorite was when they found uh, traces, very small traces again, of glyphosate in red wine 
and beer. Now, um, to say that we cannot prove that it's not a carcinogen, although this is itself a little bit of um, uh, uh, some rather interesting scientific gymnastics by people who were paid by U.S. tort, tort lawyers yes. to deliver that decision. But um, if you, even if you were to accept at trace levels that it might be a carcinogen, the level of ethanol in the beer or the wine is a far greater risk to cancer than anything near like we're talking yes. million fold times more, <laughs> but, but we enjoy the benefits. And so we don't actually look for carcinogens there. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yes. Don't, uh, I think that would be one area where the environmentalists would be unwise to dive into because a lot of people would be rightfully angry if they were coming for your beer and wine. Uh, another one that we've touched on recently is PFAS, um, which is commonly referred to as man-made chemicals. And there's been a growing push in the EU and the US to basically declare them all, all 4,700 of those chemicals hazardous and uh, apply some heavy restrictions. And from my point of view, there certainly are some very legitimate examples of where it's a problem and contaminate if they're dumping C8 into waterways or um, other kind of horrific examples. But then when you dig a little further, you look at like how cell phones are made or various medical technologies that rely on this type of stuff. Um, I'm curious as to what your take is on how that, that debate has developed in either the EU or in the U.S., well, there, there are several problems here. Uh, first of all, there's a question, can we trust anything man-made? Uh, we don't give the same scrutiny to anything that is considered uh, natural because it's, it's natural, it's fine. <laughs> uh, and so we have, first of all, an artificial dichotomy, uh, which, is, which, which is a religious belief. Uh, if you say everything natural is good, as it says in the good book, uh, <laughs> and everything... Uh, man-made, well, we can't trust man, uh, the fallen angel, so we must, we, we must remove it. Uh, well, you're, you're going to get some very strange and dangerous policies, and also I don't think you're going to be able to survive as a species at the present rate that we're at. So that, that's the first problem, is this man-made natural dichotomy. The second thing is um, that, once again, I, and, I, and I did work 15 years for a chemical company, and that's one of the reasons why I'm called a shill all the time, although I, I did stop in 2004, but, uh, mm -hmm. but shill always a shill, I guess. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, I, I think one of the things uh, to realize is that we manage the risks uh, and we are able to reduce exposures and we're able and uh, working in a factory where you know that a spark could lead to an explosion. Uh, you take care, and this is what mm -hmm. risk manage management is all about. But if you don't, if you don't understand what risk management is, then uh, you have to remove anything that might be hazardous off the market. There's yeah. a deep problem here, though, David. Sorry, I, I don't want to. No, 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 you're good. Don't go one step deeper. Um, we also have this rather strange. Uh, idea that uh, the only things that we should allow is what keeps us safe. Now, what is safe? Safe is an emotional concept. Uh, and it's also very much a relative concept. What may be safe for me uh, may not be safe for uh, my, my child, or in fact, may not be safe for my neighbor who has a different threshold of understanding of, uh, of, of risk, uh, mm -hmm. maybe more risk averse. 
And so the more we talk about safe, the more we're getting into this rather strange focus. Because in reality, nothing is safe. And what we actually should be doing and what risk managers do is they talk about safer. Okay, so this is safe, but let's see if we can make it safer. You know, how safe is safe enough? Uh, once again, what's reasonable? Um, and if we approach these questions with safer, um, is there a safer way to manage these chemicals so we can enjoy the benefits that they're used for? Um, is, uh, you know, is there a way that uh, it, it's the, the, the technologies can be made safer and less, uh, you know, problematic for the environment. But not the idea, is it safe? Yes or no, tick the box or, or ban it. Now, let me just take an example. Mm -hmm. um, when the vaccine started coming up, for, first of all, with the whole coronavirus, uh, there was no risk management. Nobody, you know, we waited till people got sick and mm -hmm. started coming to the hospital. And then we took the precautionary principle, lock everyone down. Yep. There should have been a sense when the virus started to spread to, first of all, you know, protect vulnerable populations, you know, mm -hmm. reduce exposure to, the, you know, those most at risk, meaning in, in old age homes. Um, problem started in March. We didn't actually start getting PPE equipment to rest homes in most countries till mid-May, June. Um, so that's already there. there. There was no risk management. The only thing we do is take precaution, lock everyone down, no benefits, too bad, you lose benefits, but that's mm -hmm. life. Um, so we didn't have a risk management strategy in place. Now, on top of that, we kept promising our population, if you stay at home, you're going to be safe. That was probably the worst advice you could have. The, the, what, the, what the risk manager should have done if we had risk managers at the time is say, look, this virus is kind of strong. I strongly suggest that you try to reduce your risks. Um, and that includes, for example, eating well, losing weight. If you do get the virus, this is how you'll survive it uh, until we get a vaccine. Uh, try as well, reduce your stress, exercise as much as you can and uh, make sure that you sleep well. Instead, we lock everyone up. They're not exercising. They're not sleeping well. They're all stressed out. They're taking a lot of drugs and, and beer to handle this stress. They're sure. gaining. They're doing everything they were not supposed to do to manage a risk. Mm -hmm. But we told them if they stay at home, they'll be safe. And that was the wrong advice. But finally, we did get vaccines out. Mm -hmm. And what happened? Well, we found out with uh, one of the early vaccine results that I think seven people in Germany had blood clots after, after maybe 100,000 vaccines. Now, we're not even sure this is, this is in line with normal blood clot results. Yep. So people aren't safe with the vaccine. So therefore, we have to suspend precaution until we can guarantee that our public is safe. These are EU officials who are saying this. It's our job to keep the public safe. There is no safe. Yep. And so as long as we look at that as zero risk, 100% uh, safe, uh, well, first of all, we're never going to be, but then the public also expects it. And the public is waiting for us to make sure that there are no risks. Well, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, we're about to go to commercial, but we'll definitely have you on the show again as, as we talk more about risk and hazard. Okay, stay safe, David. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow the Consumer Choice Center on Twitter at Consumer Choice C. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words. See you Thursday. You have